Hey, Life Support listeners. This week, we get the chance to talk with Eric Silk of the Clinical Psychopharmacology Program at ISU. He tells me what that actually means and what it means for care systems and providers in Idaho and beyond. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy this episode. And don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. So, Eric, could you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Eric Silk. I am the program director and department chair for clinical psychopharmacology at Idaho State University. Awesome. Um, Can you also tell us uh, where you are, um, your pronouns? What do you do when uh, you're, you're not working? Yeah, well, I live outside of Boise, Idaho. And I um, relocated here from Wyoming. I came in 2019, so kind of right before the pandemic started, specifically for the the job at ISU. So I'm a EM, and uh, yeah, so I've kind of moved around in my life. Um, I'm originally from Michigan. I went to Michigan State University. And then I started grad school in uh, New York City at John Jay College of uh, Criminal Justice. I started in forensic psychology. And then I quickly realized I was in a research position with uh, Columbia and uh, New York State Psychiatric Institute that I needed to continue on. So I uh, started a PhD program in clinical psychology in neuropsychology at um, Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, So I stayed there for my PhD and then got a visiting uh, professor position there. And I also uh, did a postdoc degree in clinical psychopharmacology there. Wow. So you're not kidding when you say that you've kind of been all over the place um, in terms of discipline, geography, um, but it sounds like you've landed on this um, psychopharmacology, which sounds like um, psychopharmacology and criminal justice and forensics all sound like they could be part of a Law & Order <laughs> SVU episode, but I'm, I'm not quite sure um, that those all belong together. Can you explain the concept of clinical um, psychopharmacology a little bit more? This is, uh, well, I kind of, I always start by saying it's, this is something sort of old in psychology, but also something new. So um, clinical psychopharmacology is the use of medications to treat psychological disorders. And I, I always pause and say, you got to remember that it's also when not to use medication for psychological disorders. So we're psychologists first and foremost, uh, but we do have this advanced training in psychopharmacology. This has been something that um, has been around since the mid-1980s is when this idea of a prescribing psychologist um, is introduced. So it really starts in Hawaii. So that's when the first uh, legislation is uh, um, put forward for a prescribing psychologist. But it was unsuccessful, and it has been unsuccessful since then. But that said, Hawaii has really been at the heart of the prescribing psychology movement. So it was uh, Senator uh, Daniel Inouye who uh, really championed that with um, a psychologist 
named Pat DeLeon. So that was in the mid 80s. And simultaneously, um, there's a psychologist with Indian Health Services at the Santa Fe Indian Hospital. Um, in the dates, not exactly clear, but it's somewhere around the same time, like mid 1980s. Um, and his name was Floyd Jennings. And they did something really wild with him. So he didn't have training in psychopharmacology, but they needed prescribers so bad that they just gave him prescriptive authority. And he kind of had to learn on the job. So this is, this is pretty wild. In that first year, he treated over 300 folks. And I, sometimes I make a joke of this. It's, it's not an appropriate joke, but nobody died from uh, inappropriate medication usage. So he continued prescribing for a long time. Then the uh, United States Department of Defense got involved. So Daniel K. Inui again, um, he's advocating for better uh, mental health care for folks in the military. So the Department of Defense puts together this um, psychopharmacology demonstration project. So what they did is they recruited 10 psychologists. And it it's kind of an interesting side note here that they chose psychologists that didn't have training uh, like in biological basis of behavior. They didn't want psychologists that were really already trained in that. They wanted just a regular old psychologist to see if they could train them to safely prescribe medication. Eight started in what um, is now a clinical psychopharmacology program. There's, there's was quite a bit more intense. Um, so about 1,400 hours of training, more like uh, going to medical school. And then they took two and put them in a PA program, so a physician's assistant program. And it's uh, kind of interesting that after just a short period of time, they pulled the two out of the physician's assistant program because it wasn't applicable to what they needed to do. So they were training them in uh, pathophysiology, which is important, but they were missing those critical components related to prescribing and prescribing for uh, psychiatric conditions. So 10 psychologists completed that. So the first uh, psychologist in the military to prescribe is Commander John Sexton. So that's kind of an interesting um, side note. And then the second one is a very prominent psychologist named Morgan Sammons, uh, who works with the National Register now, who is one of my psychopharmacology professors way back when, when I did that training. So then... And I, at this time, I'd be in graduate school in New York City. In 2002, New Mexico is the first state um, to have a bill pass and allow for psychologists to have prescriptive authority. At Guam, technically, before that in uh, 1999. So in 2002 and then 2004, Louisiana. And then later, um, Illinois in 2014, Iowa 2016, and then Idaho in 2017. I was in Washington, D.C. doing some advocacy work with the American Psychological Association, and I saw my colleagues from Idaho celebrating, jumping up and down, crying, um, 
So this would be Kendra Westerhouse and uh, Paige Haviland and Sue Farber, um, who are all very important psychologists in Idaho. They have done so much to make this happen. Uh, and I just, I didn't know what was going on. And they said, well, uh, Governor Otter just signed that bill. And I, in my head, I remember saying, well, I'm going to be moving to Idaho. And so that's when I, I started looking at actually making the move and then later contacted Idaho State University um, because I'd heard that they were uh, going to uh, start this psychopharmacology training program. And lo and behold, here I am. So kind of a, a long-winded story, uh, but that's, that's really what got me here. And it uh, kind of the, some of those roots of prescribing psychology. So been around for a long time, relatively new in Idaho. No, that um, is super helpful just kind of in giving some context. I also feel like next time I go to trivia, when it's um, history of psychopharmacology, uh, I'll <laughs> definitely win that round. So that that's perfect. I, you know, especially when you talk about the geography um, of those locations that have passed um, uh, legislation to allow um, prescribing psychology. Um, we're, we're talking about a lot of rural states um, and a lot of states that are mental health care provider shortage areas. It makes me think about um, how you could think about um, clinical psychopharmacology either as an extension or gap filling uh, resource in healthcare yes. versus um, a different way of managing behavioral health conditions um, and mental health. So how do you think about that in your practice? Is it is it kind of filling a gap with prescribing or is it kind of a frame shift in the way that we manage medications for mental health conditions? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, so let's kind of start at the beginning in that rural areas really do play a critical role in the development of prescribing psychology in the United States, no doubt about it. And we're you know, in Idaho, the whole state's in a mental health care provider shortage area, and that's really um, notable with psychiatry. So what do, you, what do you do? And what happens is that you get uh, folks that don't have specialized training prescribing a majority of the medication for psychiatric conditions. So, uh, you know, family practice physicians. The psychopharmacology training, they really kind of break it down into different levels of training from just basic education uh, all the way up to independent prescribing. I kind of find myself in the middle uh, just personally. So what I do is more consultation. So I work as a regular psychologist, but it has, having that training has really changed the, um, the referrals I get and who I'm able to see uh, complicated medical cases, things like that. It's, it's fundamentally changed me as a psychologist. So I always say like, you can, you can do this training, never write a prescription in your entire life and still benefit from it. So at this point, there's been over 2000 psychologists that have this training um, and then just over 200 prescribing psychologists. So it's a small fraction that actually do go on to prescribe. And what that actually looks like, the actual prescribing is highly dependent on the laws and rules in the particular state. So things like formulary, you know, what patient populations can you see? 
for example, Illinois has a pretty restrictive formulary. So um, like prescribing psychologists in Illinois can't prescribe stimulants for ADHD. Um, in Idaho, we have a pretty broad formulary. So psychologists can prescribe for any mental health condition. And in the future, they'll also uh, be able to prescribe medication like Suboxone or Buprenorphine for opiate use disorders, which would be really, really amazing. Only uh, New Mexico and Idaho psychologists are lined up to do that. So right now we're sitting in the state, we have uh, eight prescribing psychologists in the state. That might not seem like a lot, but um, when you look at the total number of psychiatrists that we have in the state, this is, it's, that's adding a good chunk of folks um, that are highly, highly trained. And I would anticipate that number goes up pretty quickly. So by 2024, I think, you know, we'll be over a dozen. And then Idaho is uh, pretty permissive in terms of um, like access to licensure. So Governor Little here, um, he has an executive order uh, for universal licensure. So prescribing psychologists in other states uh, could come to Idaho and get licensed here. So really the the door is open and it's open, like you said, because we need help here. So we have a, sh a shortage of prescribers. So what I do, um, I work in an integrated mental health clinic and I work very closely with a psychiatric pharmacist, Lucy Wilkening. Um, and in Idaho, uh, pharmacists also have uh, a broad uh, scope of practice. So this is our psychiatric pharmacist really manages the medication and I work more as a traditional psychologist, but it's just having that education and training is the interface. It allows you to talk about it, but we have um, students that are now working at St. Alphonsus in the pain and spine clinic. That's uh, Paige Haviland. Uh, this training just really changes. Again, it changes you as a psychologist. And I, I think it's, perfect training to get you prepped to work in an interdisciplinary or integrated setting with other providers. Absolutely. And I think, you know, definitely what you talk about in terms of dedicated training and that gap between who has the area focus and who prescribes most of the medications. I mean, it makes me think, um, not I hope I don't get in trouble telling this story, but not to pick on um, my husband, but he's a, a primary care provider. And I remember in residency, him being on like his mental health rotation. And um, he came home that afternoon and he was like, gosh, this is just like the easiest rotation. I was like, what'd you do? And he was like, oh, we just sat around and talked about like how um, uh, Otis Redding songs are all about depression. And I was like, weren't you supposed to be like talking about patient management and, and stuff like that? But, you know, it, it kind of points to family medicine providers are really um, have the, the super broad scope and are being asked to do everything. And that, yeah. that leads over into doing medication management, particularly for mental health conditions. And it's with pretty limited training um, when it's held up against, you know, clinical psychologists, um, you know, social workers and others, um, psychiatric pharmacists. But despite that, they're, they're the ones that are controlling so much of the uh, prescribing it's, and medications. 
Yeah, it's 80 to 90% of psychiatric medications. I mean, it's, it's a vast majority. To follow up your story, sometimes I, I make a slightly inappropriate example um, with um, gynecologists. I mean, women see their gynecologists every year. Um, and a lot of gynecologists manage psychiatric medications, which is, which is great. Like, I'm not knocking them. Um, we, we need folks that have that training across the board. But um, it's, it's when you get in the weeds, it's that specialized training. You know, I, I teach at, um, at Idaho College of Osteopathic Medicine in their mental health module. And they don't get a lot. I mean, they get enough, but really, you know, when you get out of medical school, medical students have basically the same training, like uh, wherever they went to medical school, but then they specialize in residency, like, like your husband, that example. That's where we expect them to get extra training. Now, in contrast, you've got a psychologist. So our students already have doctoral degrees, right? So they have a PhD or a PsyD. So they're looking at between five and seven years, maybe a little more of graduate school. And that's after their undergraduate degree. And uh, so they get done with that. And then they have to do this postdoc training. And so our, our program is an additional two years of coursework. So it's, uh, it's very, very rigorous. Now, just like that uh, Department of Defense psychologist, where they're just taking a regular old psychologist, um, we, we really follow like the same model. Uh, some programs do have uh, pretty intense prerequisites. We don't. We want to take uh, just a good old psychologist and figure out how to specialize their training. So the first year of the program, we go back and it's really basic sciences. So they do like anatomy and physiology. And they're in the anatomy and physiology labs, the same labs that the medical students use. I mean, they're, they're shoulder to shoulder in that lab. Uh, and they have some of the same instructors. Pathophysiology, so cellular and molecular neuroscience courses like that. Um, and then they, in the second semester, they learn like the basics of physical assessment. And then they start to learn about pharmacy, pharmacology. Uh, in general. And then we do some training um, in the summer. We do clinical training for some students. Um, so that's in physical assessment. And then that kind of unlocks the second year of the curriculum. And that's where you get into the specialized coursework in psychopharmacotherapeutics. It's kind of a mouthful, but that's, that's why they're there. Um, so that's a nine credit course sequence. Like at ISU, we have um, a doctoral nurse practitioner program for psychiatric mental health. We kind of looked at potentially sharing those courses, but those folks would only get three credit hours in psychopharmacotherapeutics. I mean, we're, our students would have nine. So we go above and beyond that of just about anybody. And I think the didactic coursework is important um, kind of in contrast to the training that you might get on a residency. I think that gives us a lot of control over the material. And the American Psychological Association, it's, it's not called accreditation, it's called designation. 
but they oversee programs um, in their curriculum to ensure that it's of the highest quality. So our students get done with that, all their coursework, then they do an additional 400 hours of clinical supervision, and then they would have to pass a national licensure exam. That's called the PEP exam. So the psychopharmacology exam for psychologists, it is a doozy. I mean, it's it's the hardest test I've ever taken. I Sometimes I, I bite my tongue a little bit when my current students ask about it, but they need to know. I mean, this is extremely rigorous. So that's an, a national exam that's administered by um, the Association of State and Provincial Boards of Psychology. Um, it is, it's just, it's incredibly hard and it has a wide range of content areas. So when you look at that exam, plus the exam for professional practice in psychology, that's the EPPP that most states you need for licensure. Uh, psychologists have been through a lot. So by the time they're getting ready to prescribe, I mean, that is, uh, I mean, it, it could be 10 years of um, work after their bachelor's degree. So, I mean, like 14 years of college. It's, there are just way overprepared. What? They still have a lot to learn. <laughs> Makes me tired just thinking about it. Um, but no, I, I think, again, not to knock any other uh, discipline, but just thinking about this more as like a care team approach that um, you have uh, folks like family practice providers or gynecologists that are managing a lot of the patient population, but then thinking about prescribing psychologists as having this true expertise. So when, when you think about your graduates sitting, uh, fitting into systems of care, like really what are, what are some of the benefits and the roles that you see them playing within those care teams or larger care systems? Yeah, so um, like um, our student Paige Haviland, um, she, she's, she is the first psychologist in Idaho to be um, credentialed within a hospital system. So she is working side by side uh, with a psychiatrist who does supervise her. Um, so our prescribing psychologist will come out at a provisional level at first, and that requires uh, a, a supervision. So they'll um, at minimum have one hour a week of supervision, but they're working hand in hand. Um, additionally, just kind of the way that the laws and rules are set up in Idaho is that a prescribing psychologist would work directly with uh, the patient's primary care provider. So that's like the major link right there is just with their primary care provider. So even if they're not in an integrated setting, um, they are communicating actively when they are working with a patient with the primary care provider. In an integrated setting, I just, I mean, I like to think about it really just kind of super practically. Like it, I, I haven't been to my primary care physician and had them go like, hey, we should go walk down the hall and go see Dr. So-and-so about this particular issue. And, you know, like when you look at the research, and the numbers are kind of a little all over the place, but like 30 to 40% of visits to primary care providers 
for psychological issues, right? And um, a lot of the things that are impacting folks' health negatively um, is related to like lifestyle, right? And so we need behavior change. And the last time I checked, like behavior change was a psychologist game, right? And so even if it's, it's not writing a prescription, it's just having that link that you can go see the psychologist down the hall. Uh, additionally, you know, if somebody has psychological issues, a primary care provider doesn't have the time to adequately address those concerns. You know, they're, man, they're seeing people quickly. It's, you know, churn and burn. So to have the ability to take someone down the hall to a psychologist that does have that appropriate medical training as well, that could spend an hour, hour plus with a patient is just an unbelievable asset. So I think it unburdens medical providers. And right now, uh, as, kind of, as things kind of shake out in the state, I think that Idaho will develop its own kind of unique identity and how prescribing psychologists are practicing. And although there's eight, um, those eight are pretty fresh um, in the state. So it really hasn't been well-defined yet, but it'll be interesting to see. And I just, I hope that our colleagues, our medical colleagues um, recognize the benefit that a prescribing psychologist could add to their practice. And if, you know, if they wanna improve outcomes, I think we're a critical uh, addition to that healthcare team. That uh, definitely paints a clear picture in terms of the care team. And you talk about perception kind of on the medical side. Um, ha has there been pushback uh, against um, this prescribing psychologist role um, in the state or across the country? Um, yes. Yeah, without a doubt. And it, it pains me that there is uh, such pushback. Um, frankly, I, I wasn't fully anticipating that as I stepped into this role. Um, there is. Um, there, on a national level, there are a few organizations that are opposed. And, you know, some psychologists within the field are opposed to prescribing psychology. But the American Psychological Association has acknowledged that this is something that we should pursue. Uh, and we did that long, long, long ago. Like, I mean, we're 20 years out. So even though there is um, opposition on a national level, it's, it's still moving forward. And uh, you have to overcome some of that opposition. A good example would be like in the VA. So uh, when we're talking about the origins of prescribing psychology, the military, there's rural areas in the military. So if we're good enough for folks when they're enlisted, but um, in the VA system, total no-go. So no prescribing psychologists. And it's, you know, that's really, for me, that's, it's just um, kind of disheartening. And uh, folks are, are actively working to change that. Uh, because they recognize the value that prescribing psychologists can add to that healthcare team. And then within, you know, each state, as they have these legislative efforts, you do sometimes get a pushback from the medical community. And certainly 
um, when this happened in Idaho. A lot of it was before my time here, but um, there would be negotiated meetings with the Idaho Medical Association and the Idaho Psychiatric Association. Now that we're here, though, um, the opposition seems to be slightly waning a little bit, but there are um, definitely uh, specific hosp hospital systems that have said uh, flat out no. Um, in contrast, others have embraced this idea, like St. Alphonsus, um, and I'm, I'm just I'm so appreciative of that. My best answer to the solution of this is just give it some time. Um, our, our folks that are coming out of our program are are so well trained that as they start practicing. Um, they will open the doors for other prescribing psychologists. And, you know, I wish I had like a fast forward button on that, um, but it, it does take time. And having all of this occur kind of in the midst of the COVID pandemic makes it um, that much more complicated. But hopefully we're on the way out of that. Yeah, I think uh, it makes everything a bit more complicated, certainly. But, you know, it seems like... Um, part of some pushback could potentially be around um, a different philosophy around medication. You kind of alluded to the fact that clinical psychopharmacology thinks about and utilizes not only adding medication, but subtracting medication to manage conditions. Can you talk about that strategy and how it might be in contrast to some other training that other disciplines might have and utilize? This is a broad generalization, and, and I know it's not exactly uh, true. But um, what a psychiatrist does is manage medication, right? And that is incredibly important. Um, that is their tool that they have. There are other things I know that. I'm, I'm just making this simplistic. But a psychologist is trained in lots of different things, right? And what at the end of the day, what I want to see happen is that we're using empirical evidence to guide treatment decisions. So when is the best time to use medication? When's the best time to use therapy? When's the best time to use them both in combination? What are, what are our patient preferences also? Things like that. So um, psychologists have multiple tools in the toolkit that they can use. And that unprescribing for a prescribing psychologist, I just, I cannot stress how important that is. Polypharmacy is a huge problem. It's a really big deal. Um, I mean, I personally, I, my clinical practice, I work uh, with a lot of folks with developmental disabilities and uh, brain injuries. And the amount of inappropriate medication that comes through my office is just shocking, um, staggering. So duplicate medications, um, you know, two medications that are supposed to do the same thing. There's, there's no evidence that that works. Again, polypharmacy, somebody might be on, on five or six psychotropic medications. And all medications have side effects. I mean, there's just no way around it. At the end of the day, right now, we don't have any medications that cure any psychiatric disorders, not one, which is kind of wild if you think about it. Like all our medications just suppress symptoms and maybe someday and that someday might be a lot closer than I, we might think. 
there could be medications that could cure something like post-traumatic stress disorder, maybe even depression. I mean, there's a lot of hope in um, like the field of uh, the psychedelic medicine right now. It's kind of a, a buzz topic, no pun intended. But other medications like, you know, ketamine, maybe we will have a cure for some psychiatric disorder in the near future. Uh, but for right now, we just don't. So I don't know which phrase I like, but uh, de-prescribe or unprescribe or remove inappropriate medications, I just, I think is absolutely critically important. And it, it, there's nobody better uh, than a prescribing psychologist to do that because we can implement some of those uh, therapeutic strategies that somebody might need at that point to help manage something like anxiety. So can you maybe walk me through like a, a patient with a specific condition and how prescribing psychologists might serve that person just to give us a sense of, you know, what, what does care actually look like when, when you're working um, with a prescribing psychologist? Yeah. So, I, well, I'll use myself as an example. And again, I'm not exactly a prescribing psychologist, so I would be consulting, but it's, it's, I'll make the link for you. This would be like a, a, a referral comes in and it's a graduate student that has new onset ADHD. So they're in a, in a professional program. This is a pretty heavy hitter student. And, uh, you know, the first thing that kind of raises an eyebrow is new onset ADHD. But they would they come to see me and in my practice, I do mostly assessment and testing. So um, for this individual, really quickly in doing like a clinical history, it didn't seem like ADHD was the correct diagnosis, but it did seem like the anxiety was a, a pretty major issue and depression. So we did just some very quick assessment for ADHD, anxiety, depression. At that point, we'd make a diagnosis and I, I'm kind of changing things for this particular person I'm thinking about. And honestly, I can't remember what the diagnosis was. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but we didn't diagnose ADHD and that's the important part. It, it was like, something like major depressive disorder with anxious distress or something like that. And so I then thought uh, what I do is I get a very thorough history. We get medical history to make sure that there's no medical comorbidities that are causing the problem, like, like you know, like a thyroid disorder or something like that. Get a family history, um, ask if there's any family members that have similar conditions. If they do, what medication work for them? And then I think a lot about side effect profiles of medication because sometimes we can use those side effects to our uh, uh, advantage. Like if maybe a medication that's slightly sedating might, might be a good thing if somebody needs help with like sleep or something like that. So then, but I do consult with uh, my uh, psychiatric pharmacist and then she ultimately would write and manage the prescription. Sometimes medications don't go as planned. Uh, this individual um, developed like a rare rash in response to medication. We're trained to identify that. 
I mean, we we spend a lot of time going over potential side effects, adverse effects of medication. So that person, we we thought we had the right medication. We were pretty excited about that. It was working, but they developed this rash. So uh, we had to discontinue the medication, switch to a different medication. And I like I that example of like, okay, we did we did a good differential diagnosis. Our treatment plan didn't go as anticipated. We had uh, an adverse event. How do we respond to that and get this person a medication that they're not going to have an adverse response to? And um, it, so it would be uh, kind of similar to that. So we're spending quite a bit more time with folks. You know, if you went to see a psychiatrist, your first appointment, you know, in some cases it could be 15 minutes. Um, and then your medication management visits would be very short. But, you know, we would be spending sometimes several hours for the first appointment and then uh, like 50 minutes for the follow-up appointment. So it's just, it's just, it's different. But it, in the end, it's kind of like seeing a psychologist. Um, and I know a lot of folks are kind of hesitant to, see a psychologist. Um, but it usually we're pretty nice folks and, you know, we're there, we're there to help. Um, that's the important part. Well, that's perfect. And I think that that's a great place to end is, um, we're, we're nice folks and we're there to help. That's, that's a good way to, I think, summarize really, um, in terms of the, the discipline, the orientation and the training that you've described. And, really how it's working in Idaho. So I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And um, hopefully we get to have some more conversations with you in the future um, about what's happening in your world and the world of this uh, emerging discipline in Idaho. So thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Rachel. I appreciate it. I, I love this stuff. I can talk about it all day. So there and there are so many potential follow ups to this. Um, I, I would love to join you in the future. Thank you. So that's the end of our conversation with Dr. Eric Silk. We're looking forward to some follow-up conversations with him uh, because we just dove in a little bit today. Uh, We've got resources in the show notes. And thank you again for listening. Always remember to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And just remember to give each other a little life support. Life Support is a podcast developed by See Who, where we talk to providers, experts, and others about their experiences with health and the systems that create it. This podcast music is written and performed by Anthony Leon. The show is also produced by Anthony. For more information, visit us on the web at seewho.org, and remember to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Thanks, everybody.